So have you ever been to a super fun party? Just a super fun, great party. Just one of those parties that you just said, man, this is fantastic. Well, this past week, I went to an anniversary party of a childhood friend, and uh, it was super fun. I mean, just super fun. And a few months ago, I went to another party in their family, another milestone party that they had, and that one was super fun too. And the other night, I was sitting with another childhood friend who she has been at both of these parties, and at one point in our conversation, she said, well, man, what's the next big thing gonna be? Keep having all these big parties. So what about you? What's the next big thing in your life? What's the next big thing that's going to be happening? Is it the birth of a child? Is it a wedding, a a wedding anniversary? Is it trick-or-treating? Are you switching to decaf? Is is that the next big thing, you know, in your life? Or as some people call it, useless, warm, brown water. Yeah, that, that may be all it is. I don't know if it's in the stores yet, but the kind folks at the farms of Pepperidge are providing the world a brand new event. And that is, if I'm saying this right, Dunkin' Donuts, Pumpkin Spice, Graham Cracker Goldfish. Yeah, that's a lot of words, but maybe that's your next big thing. You know, maybe you're going to head out today. Maybe you're going to leave the sermon and go find those right now. Um, There's a lot of next big things in life, but what if I were to tell you that I know the next big thing in each one of your lives. I actually know the next big thing that's gonna happen in your life. Does that make me Zoltar or, you know, does that make me the, the great Karnak? No, it just means that I know something because I know something. And what is it that I know? Well, today we, I think, pretty confidently finish our series, Doors. Um, There was a chance, you know, several times in the last couple of months, uh, but I think today is it. Uh, We're going to be looking today in 1 Peter chapter 4, and our message today is all doors, all doors. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, and and the reason I know what the next big thing in your life is is because Peter told me, And, and Peter has for us the next big thing in your life. It is the biggest thing above all the other big things that are going to happen. So what's the next big thing in my life? What's the next big thing in your life? Look at first Peter chapter four, beginning with verse seven. Peter writes, the end of all things is near. That's the next big thing. That is the next big thing in my life. That's the next big thing in your life. I'm sure this is not original to me, but but the picture here is that before the foundations of the world, that God created a masterpiece. And when he finished the the final brushstroke of his masterpiece, he put a covering over it. And perfectly timed and in grace and mercy over the years, he has taken a little bit of that covering away to reveal one more piece of the masterpiece. All of redemptive history found in this amazing masterpiece and slowly but surely, God keeps pulling back a corner so we can see another way that he has been moving since before the foundations of the world to create and sustain and maintain a way for you to be rescued, for me to be rescued. And we see it all along, just a little portion by a portion, the creation of the world. 
And then the covering pulled back a little more, the fall of humanity, the calling of Abraham, the exodus from Egypt, the creation of Israel, the exile to Babylon, the return from exile, the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, the breathing out of the Holy Spirit, the establishing of the church, part by part, piece by piece, God has been uncovering and allowing us to see just one more bit of his masterpiece, and now there's only one part left. All of it has been uncovered except for, for one section. And what is that one section? Well, it's the return of Jesus Christ. For 200 decades, God has been showing his mercy by not uncovering that portion. See, by not uncovering that portion, he is creating grace and mercy, allowing the opportunity for people to find Jesus, to know Jesus, and for the gospel to change their life. An opportunity for the gospel to be preached so that men and women and boys and girls might believe in and follow and receive the salvation that only comes from Jesus. From the the first millisecond after Jesus ascended into heaven, this moment, this part of the masterpiece has been in the on-deck circle. This, This is going to happen. It's always been going to happen. All of redemptive history is leading toward the great and grand and glorious return of Jesus Christ. But it will only be great and grand and glorious for those who have yielded their life to Jesus. For those who have not, the return of Jesus is actually something that we see in so many different ways in the Bible as a terrifying event for someone who is looking at the truth of Jesus as as just a religion or as just a fairy tale or a myth or a legend. Jesus used the words that a person must be born again to have eternal life with God. So how do you know if you've been born again? Well, someone put it this way. If if someone were to come up to you and say, hey, how do you know that you've been born? You would not pull out your wallet and pull out your driver's license and say, oh, it's right there. There's my birth date. Here's an official document that says I've been born. No, we would say what? Well, I know I've been born because I'm talking to you. Because I'm breathing. I, I know I'm born because I'm alive. And the same is true when it comes to being born again, when it comes to being saved in Jesus Christ. We don't pull out a church membership card and say, oh, well, this is the day that I shook the preacher's hand and, and this is the day I got baptized. So here, here's the proof I've been born again. No, we know we've been born again because we're alive in Christ. The story of Jesus is not just a story. It it is the definition of our life. It is our delight. It is our joy. It's what defines who we are. If you've been born again, it's because you are alive in Christ right now. It's not just a story. Peter says, the end of all things is near. So the question for all of our hearts is, have you been born again? Are things right between you and God? Because the return of Jesus Christ is all wrapped up in the end of all things. So knowing him matters. Is the return of Jesus your next big thing? It is, whether you acknowledge it or not, but is it? Is there some joy in the return 
of Jesus Christ. I know this sounds silly, but you know, when I'm sick or when at least three of my four cars are in the shop, I am all about Jesus, you know, coming back, right? I mean, we have these moments in life where, where our hearts are tender toward, man, I, I do wish kind of Jesus would come back now. But remember this, when we say, come Lord Jesus, that also means the damnation of people who reject him. So we, we do want to say, come Lord Jesus, but we want to say it a little soberly because there is so much wrapped up in that next big thing. So what are some of the next big things that you're thinking about right now? I mean, and in your life. Is it, you know, graduation? Is it a, a birthday? Is it a bowl game? Is it, is it surgery? Is it fall break? Is it the next test at school? Is it the next project at work? Is it the next election? What is it that, that when you begin to think, you're like, yeah, this, this is a big thing. This is a, a big thing happening in my life. Look, all of those things I just mentioned, they all have their place. But none of them compared to the return of Jesus Christ become the next big thing. No, Jesus is the big thing of all big things. And the end of all things is near. And Jesus is returning again. Now, someone might say, well, been a long time <laughs> I mean did he get lost did he forget to download google maps on his phone before he ascended I mean does, does he not understand what's going on we are all tempted to to look at history through our eyes I love what David Mathis wrote about the nearness of Christ and, and what it looks like the math he said this it's not about shortness of time as we conceive it but about nearness in history as God crafts it. Listen to that one more time. It's not about shortness of time as we conceive of it, meaning our definition of time, but it's about nearness in history as God crafts it. Think of it this way. If you tell a child that you're going to take them to the Double K Ranch, for a hot glazed donut or maybe a, a pumpkin spice donut and you say, look, we're going to go in 30 minutes. You know what's going to happen? A child's going to come in the room about every 30 seconds. Hey, has it been 30 minutes yet? Is it 30 minutes? Is it time to go? Is it 30 minutes? So you see, we're human. That's our concept of time. And look, I don't mean this in, in a weird way, but we are all so arrogant when it comes to time. We're super arrogant. We think time is supposed to work for us when we're in traffic when we're in line no matter where we are we think time is supposed to work for us we are appalled that anyone makes us wait on anything we don't like to admit it but all we have to do is put a video camera on any of us and it's how we are during the week so time is a thing for us that we're very arrogant with we think time should serve us but that's not even rationally true. And so when it comes to the, the truth of God, we have to remember that, that all of creation, all of redemptive history is, is God's. He, he created it. It's his masterpiece. So he gets to define near. And that's a great thing. You know why? Because if you're a Christian, you want God to be defining near. And for lack of a better word, if you're not a Christian, you want God to to be defining near. Why? Well, 
God's definition of near means you were born. And for some of you, it means you were born again. So I kind of like his definition near because it made sure I was born and it made sure I was born again. And if you're not a believer, then you should love God's definition of near because the door is open for you right now for things to be right between you and God. God's definition of near is fantastic. And there is something beautiful and calming and exhilarating about our ability to depend on and trust in the sovereign timing of God. And in God's sovereign sovereign timing, nearness is is still being near. He's still doing the next thing. In his sovereign timing, Jesus has not yet returned, but he is returning. The end of all things is near. So, are you ready? Are you ready for the end of all things? Are you ready for that nearness to get really, really near? If you're a Christian, there's one way to find out. If you're a Christian, one way that you can find out that you are ready for all things to be near, for the end to come, is seen in the next thing that Peter says. Verse 7, Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit. The end of all things is near. As Christians, that means that we should have sound judgment and a sober spirit. In other words, we should be clear, we should be alert, we should be sane, we should be sober, and we should be self-controlled. Now, what does that mean? What does that look like in real life? Well, think of it this way. How do you scroll through social media? How do you watch the news? How do you read the paper? How do you listen to the radio? How how do you engage with the things in the world? What is your attitude like? Are you clear? Are you alert? Are you sane and and sober and self-controlled when you're hearing information from the world? Or maybe let me ask that in a way that's slightly more uncomfortable. When you're scrolling through social media and when you're watching the news or listening to the news or listening to the radio, any way that you're engaging with information from the world, are you listening primarily as a Christian or as an American or as a Southerner or as a Democrat or a Republican or a shareholder? How do we listen? How we listen matters. The filter we use, it matters. Not just all the filters, but the first filter. The first filter matters. So when we say the end of all things is near, we're pointing to a very clear picture that ultimately there's going to be one kingdom. There's going to be one nation. There's going to be one party. There's going to be one investment. There's going to be one leader. And that all-inclusive oneness is going to be the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in the everlasting kingdom of heaven. That's it, exclamation point, final. So as Christians, that has to be our primary filter. That's the next big thing. So are we listening and learning and thinking and even speaking and acting through the filter of what we know to be the actual next big thing? That the truth of the gospel 
is part of every moment of our, our life, that everything about the gospel is in our attitude. Now look, none of us are perfect. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, what are we working toward? What are we fighting for? Are we fighting to, to be clear about Jesus, to be alert toward Jesus? Are we fighting to have a sane attitude with Jesus, meaning that, that we look at the insanity happening in the world and we don't join it? either by action or by attitude or by pundit response? Are we sanely connected to Jesus? Are we soberly fixed on Jesus? And are we looking for ways to be self-controlled with the truth about Jesus? Because that's the calling for us as the end of all things is near, that we would have sound judgment and a sober spirit because we have an amazing Savior. And why should we do that? Why should we move toward having a sound judgment and having a sober spirit? Well, Peter tells us in verse 7, for the purpose of prayer. Don't miss this math. The end of all things is near. Have sound judgment, a sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Wouldn't you think the first thing he would say is, oh, we need to go evangelize. You know, we need to go do missions. But it's not the first thing he says. Does that mean we're not supposed to evangelize? No. Does that mean we're not supposed to do missions? We're, we're not supposed to make sure the gospel gets to the Malik people of northern Pakistan? No, that's not what it means. doesn't mean we're supposed to abandon all the normal work of the church and everybody just hang out in the prayer room at the church. What it means is this, is this is still our Father's world. I'll just share a quick story. Um, it's always dangerous when I leave my notes, so we'll see how dangerous this is. Uh, but uh, two, three, I guess two weeks ago, maybe, um, I was in Augusta. I was having to mail some documents for my dad, and I was at the, the FedEx place. And when I came out in the parking lot, uh, more information than you want to know, but, but the driver's door of my car was not unlocking, um, which is just fascinating because that means every time I got in my car, I had to open the passenger door and crawl through and either open it or, you know, whatever. So it was interesting three or four days there. It's fixed now. Uh, but it was funny because the reason that I had to crawl through is because of the door. So when I crawled out of the passenger side, I turned, and there was this nice little lady sitting in her car next to me. And she said, can you help me? And I was like, well, absolutely. And she said, I can't find the UPS store. I said, all right, well, let's see what we can do. So I pull out my phone. She goes, you've got to be kidding me. You're going to do it on that thing right there? I said, yes, ma'am. I said, I want you to know. I said, my friend Grace is nearing uh, a century of life. And I said, and she uses her smartphone for everything. She's already texted me twice today. She goes, you're, you're not telling the truth. I said, I am telling the truth. I promise I am. And so I looked up and, and found the address, and I said, well, you know what, Miss Verner, you're not going to believe this. I said, but this place is just around the corner. You don't even have to leave this parking lot. It's at the top of this hill in Staples. She goes, really? I said, yeah. And so I followed her up there, and, and, and we went in, and, and uh, I checked and made sure everything was right. And uh, I just love what she told me. She said, you know what? Everything in this world is wrong. There's just so much wrong in the world, and here you are just stopping to be nice to me today. I said, well, I said, I, I learned it from my dad. My dad just stops and helps people and, and always has. And she goes, well, I appreciate you helping me. She goes, you know what? I've been jittery and jumpy all day long. I've just been upset about everything, and there's so many awful things happening in the world. I just, I can't think, and I can't calm down. And I said, well, Ms. Fern, I'm going to tell you what. You don't have to be jumpy anymore. 
I said, we got you all settled today. And I said, Ms. Vern, I'll tell you this too. I said, I'm not saying everything on the news is not true, but I tell you what I've learned. The old hymn is true. This is my father's world. And I'll rest me in that thought. Now, do I do that perfectly? No, I don't. Do I fight hard to do it as often as I can? Absolutely. Absolutely. I would just challenge and lovingly encourage you to do everything you can to remember that this is our Father's world, that this is his masterpiece. And the reason that we have sound judgment and a sober spirit and the reason that we pray first is because what we're doing is saying, God, I'm going to seek you before I seek the news. I'm going to seek you before I seek my game on my phone. I'm, I'm going to seek your truth before I listen to all of the jumpy banter around me. I'm going to seek you. I'm going to pray for your kingdom to come. I'm going to pray for your will to be done. And then as I'm doing that, I'm also going to intercede on behalf of other people that they might discover and delight in and depend on the salvation of Jesus Christ. That's why Peter says pray. It's this movement for us toward God first and most. We need to pray everywhere, every way, and every day. It's the call of our life. So, Christian, how are you praying these days? How are you thinking these days? What, what's your attitude like these days? Peter says we should be praying with a, a sober and sound attitude and spirit so that we might be able to pray in such a way that our first and primary thought is that Jesus Christ is stellar and supreme. That Jesus Christ is stellar and supreme. He's saying, pray in this way so that you would see when you're watching the news, when you're listening to the news, when you're getting information from the world, that it's always going through this filter that Jesus Christ is stellar and supreme. I just texted my kids before church. Uh, I had to order uh, our contacts, and the place I get our contacts from is, uh, is, in, is in England. And um, I, it's Brad C. Slack's fault. He told me to go there, and I've been going there ever since. It's great. Uh, but anyway, so I had to order uh, contacts for me and the kids, and so I texted them. I said, hey, just an interesting note. I said, I ordered the contacts, but, but I got this little message saying that because of the services for the queen, they won't be mailed until the 20th. And I thought, wow, I mean, things are going to shut down as, as they honor the queen. There's, there's something kind of cool about that. I mean, golly, we don't even close Waffle Houses on Christmas, right? I mean, and I just thought, wow, this, this is something, you know, that, that the whole nation seemingly is, is just going to, to close down. And this is what I texted my kids right after that. I texted them this passage from Lamentations 519. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. And then I texted them, the queen believed that too. See, Jesus Christ, he's the king. He's stellar. He's supreme. He will reign forever and ever and ever. And that stellar savior, that supreme savior is our savior. He's our king, our shepherd. But not everybody approaches life like that. 
I saw something one time that said many professing Christians are so obsessed with prophetic charts and political events that they won't even pray. They won't pray in the way that that Peter's calling us to pray. They, They won't seek the Lord. They fail to live in the comfort, the comfort, and the confidence that their Savior is the King, that their Savior is stellar, that their Savior is supreme, and that He will have the last word. And no matter what happens on this terrestrial ball, Jesus will always be King. He's stellar. He's supreme. So Peter says, pray, pray, pray with all of that in mind and pray in such a way that your attitude is clear with the gospel. Your comfort and your confidence and your sanity is wrapped up in the stellar, supreme salvation of Jesus Christ. Peter takes it one step further, though. Look at verse 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Should we be preaching the gospel? Yes. Should we be evangelizing the lost? Yes. Should we be taking the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth until Jesus returns? By all means. But what Peter notes here is that the message and the messengers are important. That's that's good for us to remember. I shared this with y'all probably more than once. It's from a missions conference in the late 80s. And one of the leaders, the speakers of that conference said this, we cannot preach good news and be bad news. We can't do it right and here and then be jerks at the restaurant. See, we can't preach good news and be bad news. We, we have to be both. And again, we're not perfect, but, but it's the call. As the end draws near, Christians need to be eager toward loving one another. Eager to love one another. Wayne Grudem said this, Where love abounds in a fellowship of Christians, many small offenses and even some large ones are readily overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion. Every action is liable to misunderstanding and conflicts abound. May it be said of our church that we are the kind of people that we overlook the small offenses and we overlook the bigger offenses and we move toward love and forgiveness first and most. Look, there's none of us that are perfect. We're not. And there's no perfect church (laughs) anywhere. In fact, the same basic things that that are conflicts in every single church today are the same basic things that were conflicts in the first church. There's really nothing new. It's, It's different titles and different genres, but it's all still the same basic things. But just because there's always been conflict in the church doesn't mean that we grab a cup of decaf and go, eh, that's just how things are, you know. Nothing we can do about it. No, no, the opposite is true. When it comes to Jesus being our stellar and supreme Savior, when it comes to us receiving salvation from Jesus, what we should do is we should work really hard to stop complaining and to start proclaiming. We should work really hard to stop hating and start participating. You know, 
We should move ourselves with the gospel toward this, this fervent love that Peter reflects because it's good for us and it's good for the gospel. In other words, let's be sure that we don't let the message of the gospel get drowned out by, by gossip or by suspicion or by just, just selfishness, you know? Let's don't let the message of the gospel be drowned out by saying, well, we want things back the way they used to be or saying, well, we want all this new stuff. Let's don't do either one. Don't even chase those paths. Let us be people that we chase after the stellar and supreme Jesus and we fight hard to have a fervent love for one another, to be eager for love. At the end of the day, the the vast majority of conflict anywhere, but especially in the church, comes from a love of self, meaning there's less of a love for God and there's more of a love for self. I've shared this before. I may have shared it here. I've said for years, I think it would be great is if, if any of us anywhere ever joined a church of any denomination that everybody should have to sign a document the day they join that has two things on it. I am not here to get my way. I am here to glorify God. What would change in the church if that became our attitude for, for the work of the church? I'm not here to get my way. I'm here to glorify God because when God is glorified, the church will be everything it needs to be and it'll be everything it needs to be for me and I'll be everything I need to be for the church. Being eager to love and trying hard to get our way, those, those are not a good marriage. John said this, 1 John 4, 8, the one who does not love does not know God because God is love. Again, we're not perfect, okay? We, we won't perfectly pull this off. But, but what's our goal? What's, what's our passion? Is it to be fervent in love, eager to love others, especially as believers? The call of the gospel moves us in that direction and, and it has an effect Look at the last part of verse 8. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Does that mean if we love other people, it'll take all our sins away? No. Does that mean if we love other people, it'll take all their sins away? No, we, we are not Jesus. We are not the Messiah. Does love covering a multitude of sins mean that, that we can just be rude jerks or rude jerkettes and it doesn't matter as long as we volunteer at the church or, you know, give some money somewhere? No. Does it mean that, that if love covers a multitude of wrongs, it, it means that we can commit adultery or we can gossip or we can cheat on our taxes or cheat on our test and, and whine and complain about the government and, and about people in the church and just make up lies and gossip and slander about things that aren't true and, and everything's okay as long as we just every now and then love somebody? No, that's, that's not the picture at all. It simply means this. When Christians are eager to love an amazing agricultural truth becomes a reality when christians are eager to love they don't give sin ground to grow on when we're eager to love we we aren't opening up the doors for sin to to take over in other words it means that when we're eager to love forgiveness not revenge is our first response Mercy, not mayhem, 
is our first reaction. The gospel, not gossip, is our first set of words. I was reading a story from about a year ago about two guys named Richard and Andy. They work at a factory outside of a a town in West Texas. Andy was a new Christian and and was doing pretty good, but he had this one particular struggle, and he told Richard about it on a regular basis. And, And the struggle was that there was this place that he used to go before he became a Christian, and he was really tempted to keep going back to that place. It, it wasn't a good place. It wasn't somewhere he needed to be. And the worst part about it was there was a fork in the road on the way home, and left went to his house, and right went to that place that he didn't need to go. One afternoon at work, he was talking to Richard, and Andy said, man, I'm, I'm struggling today. It's in my mind. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about taking the wrong fork. It's just there. I I can feel it. And so before he left that day, Richard prayed with Andy. And then later on, when, when Andy left the factory, it was pouring down rain. And he starts driving home. And he He gets up to where that fork is in the road and he's kind of looking through the windshield wipers and he he sees something at the corner of that fork. He sees Richard. And Richard is standing there with a cardboard sign with an arrow that points toward home. And as the story goes, Andy went home and he's never been the other way since. every fork in every road in your life. All the doors that you will walk through, they're all ultimately heading in one direction. The end of all things is near. No matter what door, no matter which fork, all things are moving toward the next big thing. And the next big thing is the return of Jesus Christ. It's bigger than all the other big things in the world. So, for the glory of God, for the sake of the gospel, on behalf of this church, I'm kind of holding up a cardboard sign today and simply and graciously calling you to remember that the end of all things is near. So please do this one thing. Turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus and then turn to him again and again and again and again. Turn to Jesus and live.